Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. is the more peppy of the two songs I found for this month's episode. It's called Lon Chaney. It's by the Ackleys from the 2005 album, The Ackleys, available on Apple Music. Welcome, everybody, to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.WordPress.com. We chose the song Lon Chaney because our episode is about, Richard, well, shockingly enough, it's about Lon Chaney. Today, Lon Chaney Sr. gets his due. We're going to be taking a look at three of his films. No, we're not doing Hunchback. No, we're not doing Phantom of the Opera. That would be too easy. We're going to be taking a look at He Who Gets Slapped from 1924, The Monster from 1925, and The Unknown from 1927. I am eager to get to it, so let's call the meeting to order and take care of our old business. We do have some new members. We want to welcome them verbally. I believe we've welcomed all of them except maybe one on the Facebook group page, which is on Facebook at the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Welcome to Terry Vance, Richard Cromwell, and Stephen Black. We are glad to have you in the group. One of the things we do on that Facebook group page is Converse, and that is an excellent place to leave feedback on any of our episodes if you have any suggestions or constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. Uh, we would love to have that, anything. That's a great place to do that. And we got what is probably one of the most content-packed posts, I think, that, we, that we've ever gotten. I enjoyed reading every minute of it. It was thoughtful. It commented on what we said, it added to that. And so I would encourage everyone to read the full post from Steve Beach. I pulled out just uh, one of the paragraphs to read uh, to count as feedback for last month's episode. And this was talking about our Quatermass episode. Steve says, I was extremely interested to hear your thoughts on the actors who have played Bernard Quatermass across his various incarnations. Having come to the series from the wrong end and first experienced Andrew Keir's somewhat softer interpretation of the role, I found Brian Donlevy's cold, harsher performance somewhat jarring and not in keeping with the character that I had become accustomed to. Keir's performance was much closer to the depictions in the original 50s television series. I understand that Donlevy was cast in the role because having an American in the lead would make it easier to secure distribution stateside, and as such, this was usual practice for Hammer Productions of this period. I agree that he is a more likable character in Quatermass 2, but have to argue that 2 definitely takes place after Experiment. Quatermass and Lomax clearly meet for the first time in Experiment, but in 2, when Quatermass enters Lomax's office, the pair are obviously already acquainted. 
Lomax mentions that when they worked together previously, it caused him more problems than he was known than he has known before or since. So thank you very much, Steve. I think I responded that you shattered my theory about Quatermass 2 actually taking place first, but you are absolutely right. And I appreciate that being pointed out. Yes, it was a fantastic post. And he also gave some really great suggestions in the last paragraph there. Uh, he talks about going to see the living dead at Manchester Morgue, also known as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, also known as Don't Open the Window. Uh, I hadn't heard that title for it before. Kind of threw out some suggestions for some different films to, to look at. Zombie Flesh Eaters, a.k.a. Zombie 2, Zombie Creeping Flesh, also known as Hell of the Living Dead, or Virus. I don't know. That would be kind of a fun zombie episode to do. You know, we could dive into uh, Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. I know, uh, you know, I've seen many years ago, and I would love to revisit that film. And I think I may still have it on, on DVD. I have to kind of remember if I've got it or not. And I know that I had it at one point. And I know that it's been recently re-released on Blu-ray, I think. Yeah, I've got that wrapped sitting on the shelf. I'd love to unwrap it. Some great suggestions. Yeah, and what I take from that is a themed episode of, you know, don't open the window, don't answer the door, don't, don't do this. What can you do? I would invite everyone to use their voice and leave us a message on yes. our phone line so that we can actually play your feedback rather than clunkily read it like I did. That number is 616-649-2582, or uh, brace yourselves, put your fingers near your ear holes, 616-649-CLUB. Oh my goodness. What a surprise. That proves that we can still shock and surprise people. You open the door for that. You tell people to brace themselves. I got to remember that trick next time then and do that again. Yeah, see, but that's only going to work once. We did lose somebody in the podcasting community uh, in the last month. Uh, for those of you who were there at the dawn of podcasting, one of the earliest podcasts was the Mondo Movie Podcast, and it was hosted by Ben and Dan, and it was a great show that kind of took an eclectic look at films, a lot of foreign language films, a lot of kind of deep dive films, not necessarily mainstream it was a really good show. And I didn't realize that in an indirect way, the fact that I'm here podcasting with you is actually thanks to Mondo Movie. They were one of the first. They were very supportive of Joe Barlow over at Cinema Slave. Of course, Joe was an inspiration for me. That was the very first show I left a voicemail on. And Vince Rotolo he started the B-Movie cast because he was inspired by Ben and Dan over at Mondo Movie. Without them, Vince wouldn't have started B-Movie cast. And I might not have done my blog if it wasn't for Vince. They ended their podcast quite a few years ago. I know that they moved into different areas. I think uh, I'm not sure which one moved. I think it was Ben moved to London or moved from London to San Francisco they ended the show quite a few years ago and they just announced they were going to start up again right before the holidays. They announced they were coming back. They had somehow figured out how the, the time difference was going to work for them. They apparently recorded one episode. And uh, I was just wondering about two weeks ago, 
why they had never officially relaunched the show. I knew it was coming, but I was like, wondered what was going on. And it was within a matter of days, Joe Barlow posted that Ben had announced that Dan passed away from cancer. They got one episode in the can when he got the diagnosis and he was gone two months later. He's going to post the one episode that they did as a tribute to Dan. But for any of you who, who listed, listened to the Mondo Movie Podcast back in the beginning, that was kind of a gut punch for me. I, I love listening to those guys. I was really looking forward to their show. And then when I found out, as Mary Rotolo posted, that you know Vince was inspired by them. I know that Vince and Mary actually met both of them over in England when they did a trip many years ago. That's how much of an inspiration they were to to Vince. Thoughts are with uh, Dan and his family, and Godspeed. Lon Chaney, we don't know a lot about his history. I mean, he shunned publicity. He didn't like the trappings of fame or of ego. So what we have, we kind of have to piece together. And I know we both have different resources we used. I used actually a graphic novel by Pat Dorian called Lon Chaney Speaks. It's a graphic novel. It's kind of cartoony, uh, but it is his story. And some of the artwork is great. He sort of recreates some of the movie posters from each of the movies, kind of extends them a little bit with little synopsises and stuff. So I've got that. It follows pretty closely the fictional story that's depicted in Man of a Thousand Faces, the movie with James Cagney as Lon Chaney. So I'm kind of using the fictional works as my history. However, there were many articles in monster movie magazines about Lon Chaney, particularly in Famous Monsters. I counted at least 13 different articles. It's interesting, even back then, they didn't know his history and kind of each subsequent article may correct something from a previous article because they learned new information. I mentioned this because they actually have a couple of reliable, I would consider, resources that contribute anecdotes or or something to the life of Lon Chaney. One of them is a photographer named Clarence Bull, who for 40 years photographed you know, the greatest stars of, of the time, Clark Gable, Greta Garbo, Spencer Tracy, Gene Harlow, Marlena Dietrich, and Lon Chaney. We have a couple quotes that came from him uh, regarding their account encounter. We have some comments from Lon Chaney's brother uh, posthumously that mentioned some things about Lon Chaney's life that may have corrected misconceptions that have kind of developed over the years. And then there are actually possibly two articles. I'm aware of one, and I think Richard might have another, that Lon Chaney wrote. I'm not sure where it was originally published, but uh, the one I have is called Why I Prefer Grotesque Characters by Lon Chaney. Those are my resources. That's what I'm pulling from to kind of piece together this history. Richard, what uh, did you use to kind of research and study up? There's a a variety of uh, websites, you know, trying to piece together information and kind of compare and contrast. I mean, I, I did use some of the notoriously bad resources like IMDb and, and Wikipedia. I was able to determine some of the stuff on Wikipedia that was incorrect. Uh, others were just some various websites providing some information. Really kind of hard to find a definitive source for Lon Chaney. I mean, there's so many books written about Karloff and Lugosi and Vincent Price. 
Cheney really hasn't had that much written by about him. Uh, and a lot of it is because there, there's just so little known about his personal life, right? And that's what sells a biography is the more personal side. We know the films that we did, we know his career, but beyond that, he was very, very private. One of the quotes I saw that Cheney would, when asked about his personal life, is said, you know, when He's not filming. There is no Lon Chaney. He very much, when he left the set and went home, home was home. And he didn't get wrapped up in, in the Hollywood trappings and movie scenes. In fact, very rarely did he even do any like formal premieres with his wife. Uh, I think there was some video footage of, of a premiere that he and his wife attended in the late 1920s, which very rare. I did find very helpful was a great documentary called Lon Chaney, A Thousand Faces from 2000. It was a Turner Classic Movies production. So right there, you're going to a very, I think, reputable source with Turner Classic Movies. Uh, it was produced by Kevin Brownlow, who, if uh, you've heard us mention that name before when we've talked silent movies, he is a silent film aficionado. He is one of the legends in the silent film community. His vast knowledge and the, and the sheer number of people from the silent film era that he uh, was able to interview over uh, his life, truly some amazing stories. The Film Preservation Society has been putting out a monthly newsletter for a while, and they've been pulling some information from Kevin Brownlow every month. There was a book that I believe he was going to write a long time ago, it never got published. So a lot of the stories that they're sharing in the monthly newsletter are things that would have been put into the book. The documentary was narrated by uh, Kenneth Branagh. So it's a very well put together documentary that chronicles his career, it includes a tremendous amount of clips that we thankfully still have. Unfortunately, as we'll talk about, so many of his movies are lost. I don't know if there's ever been a formal DVD release, but I know that you can find a copy on YouTube. That's where I found it. It is not the best quality. Uh, you're dealing with a VHS tape, apparently, from 22 years ago. It's good enough that you can uh, sit down and enjoy it. It's roughly about 85 minutes, and uh, you get a lot of great information. I know the, the Jimmy Cagney film, Man of a Thousand Faces, in 1957, was mostly fictionalized because there just was so little that we know of his personal life. The factual parts of that film, of course, relate to the movies. And that's really where this documentary focuses on facts that we have. This is the career and this is what we know. I think we can agree on his birth date. I haven't seen any discrepancies in that. <laughs> April 1st, 1883 in Colorado Springs. That match what you found. That matches what I found. Born and then almost immediately here come the discrepancies because his, I think it's known his parents were deaf mutes. Well, um, we, we should mention he was born Leonidas Frank Cheney. That's actually his, his birth name. Lon, which I could not find actually is when he adopted the nickname Lon. I think that was when he became, got involved in the stage career. So that's, and that nickname, certainly that's what he had throughout his film career. But he was born Leonidas Frank Cheney. Okay. To, and parents were deaf mutes? Yes. And what 
discrepancy I immediately got was what kind of a burden that put on him as a child. The movie plays it up. You know, he comes home with a black eye because the kids and granted, it's a different time, but still it's it's kind of hard to swallow that having parents that were deaf mute would be such a big thing that people would consider you an outcast or your wife would be so horrified by learning this that she would that's the part about that movie that i think is really fictionalized because actually his maternal grandfather founded the colorado school for the education of mutes in 1874 so there was already a measure of respect there both of his parents that met at the school and the school still exists it's now known as the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind, but I mean, it's been uh, in existence for, you know, what, 150, almost 150 years now. I'm sure, you know, kids can be cruel. I'm sure he did probably have to put up with, with some. There's a stigmatism with someone who is deaf or is mute because, of course, little kids can be scared and terrified because that's something, something different than, than they're you know, not used to. So he, he might have experienced that. I don't know that there was anything chronicled officially that that happened, but it's very possible. Well, we do actually have a quote from Lon Chaney about this, and uh, it's within another quote from one of the articles that I mentioned. Among the questions inevitably raised is that his unhappy childhood, quote, during which he left school in his fourth year to care for his mother, who was crippled with rheumatism. To those who believed he had an unhappy childhood, he said, It isn't true that I had an unpleasant childhood. I was a pretty good football player and played a fair game of baseball. I had a lot of friends, too. For some reason, people want to sympathize with me, having gotten the idea that I was an unhappy kid. That's the bunk. I don't think my childhood is really unhappy. For youth has boundless optimism and an infinite capacity for achieving happiness under any and all circumstances. You know, one thing that I became impressed about was that Lon Chaney had a really good reputation throughout his film career. He was very well respected and he seems like a, just a very solid individual. I know that he did not have a good relationship with his son and that was a bit troubled, but that's really kind of hard to pin on exactly on Lon. Despite the fact that he, he he came in, what some people would say, at a disadvantage, having both parents deaf, I think that it actually helped him because I, I read in more than one location that it, it's helped him become skilled in pantomime mm-hmm. because in order to communicate with his parents, he couldn't speak, right? So he had to be able to do it differently. Working with that, that gave him an advantage when he eventually began to do stage work because he had been kind of acting things out his entire life. So by the time he, he enters a stage career in 1902, which he would have been, what, 19 at the time, he wasn't just on stage. He was also a stage manager. So he was covering several different aspects of, of stage. He took that skill that he had as a child and, and moved it into the uh, stage career and was very successful as he worked his way up. And as you do, you always start at the bottom, work your way up. But he earned a lot of respect from people and, and had made a name for himself in the stage community before he became Lon Chaney, the Hollywood actor. 
I've got the same thing, 1902. He started touring in vaudeville. Did you get anything about, was he trained in any technical skills or anything before going into that? I read that he was trained in carpet laying and wallpaper hanging. Can you confirm or deny that? I think there was a mention of something like that on, on, because I also watched another shorter little documentary that wasn't nearly as detailed. I think that was why he was able to do more than just act on the stage. He was able to be a stage manager. So he had some technical Mm. skills, the ability to work with your hands and be able to see something and create something had to play a huge part in the end, his makeup skills that were self-taught. I don't have much on his career from 1902 to 1905. I don't know if you, you have much. No, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, what I've got is kind of the next part is that in 1905, he married 16 year old Cleva Creighton. They had met prior to that, obviously. And it was a, I got the gist that it was a relatively short courting period. They, they got married and a year later, Creighton Cheney was born uh, in 1906. And of course, Creighton Cheney, better known to us now as Lon Cheney Jr. Unfortunately, you know, the, the marriage was not a long lived one and it was not very uh, successful. By 1913, Cleva was an alcoholic and the marriage was having all sorts of marital troubles. There were arguments. Cleva was, was clearly dealing with uh, what we would now identify as some mental health issues. And she goes across the street. I guess they were living across the street. She goes to a theater where I believe they both were working. She was a singer. Lon was uh, working on whatever production. And she uh, attempted suicide by uh, swallowing mercuric chloride. Um, she did not die, but it ruined her throat and it ended her singing career. Unfortunately, the scandal because of this, whether he felt it or whether it was, you know, legitimately looked negatively upon him, he had to leave stage work. By this point, they were living in California, Hollywood film industry, still in its infancy, but was beginning to thrive. And so he was able to make that transition from stage to acting in films. This, of course, coinciding with the fact that he and Cleva were divorced And uh, because the court systems being the way they were at that point, despite the fact that Cleva was clearly dealing with issues, she got custody of Creighton. Lon was not able to, uh, you know, I don't know if he was able to see his son or not in that two-year period of time. I get the gist that perhaps not, because over the next two years, young Creighton is kind of bounced around from home to home. He's bounced around from various boarding schools and such. He, he wasn't really living with Cleva. And I don't know at what point Cleva died. I wasn't able to, to get a confirmation. I know that she eventually did pass, but she did live for a while, obviously in continuing declining health. Creighton and Lon were essentially reunited by uh, 1915, by which point Lon has already got a film career, which we'll kind of backtrack on. But 1915 is when Lon married Hazel Hastings, uh, his second wife. He had met her during his uh, stage career. They got married. And upon getting married, now Lon could 
regain custody of uh, young Creighton. From that point forward, Creighton, you know, lived with his uh, father and, and stepmother. And at some point around this time period, of course, I think is when Cleva passed away. Prior to marrying Hazel Hastings, this is when Lon begins his film career. He uh, makes his film debut in 1913 in a, a short subject called Poor Jake's Demise. Between 1913 and 1917, he made a total of 77 short subjects, which is a crazy amount. It's sad to say that only 10 of these are still in existence. Some only exist in fragmented form. Some are in private collections, so they're not available for everyone. Unfortunately, that's a common thing with silent films. We know that for many years, people said that, well, 50% of silent films were lost, and now they have determined that, in the very least, 90% of the silent films made no longer exist. Many were destroyed voluntarily because they really didn't foresee that they would be used down the road, and many of them simply dissolved because the, the nitrate decomposition would turn the films into powder or would ignite. A lot of Lon Chaney's early career no longer exists. His oldest existing film is a 1914 uh, short called The Tragedy of Whispering Creek. And I don't know that that's publicly available. I, that might be in a private collection. But nonetheless, that's the oldest film of his that exists. And those early films, he was a supporting player. He was a contract player for Universal Studios. He was becoming successful. He was making a name for himself. At what point he goes to a uh, studio exec, William Sistrom, asks for a raise. And uh, William Sistrom said, you know, you're, you're just average. You're basically a nobody. You'll never be worth more than $100 a week. Fairly certain he lived to regret those words because Lon certainly did become much more worth than $100 a, a week. By 1915, Lon begins making feature films. Between 1915 and 1930, he makes a total of 80 feature films <laughs> in 15 years. His oldest complete feature film is The Price of Silence from 1916. It exists in a French film archive. Really becomes uh, a standout actor with a role in a 1918 film called Riddle Gone, which is a uh, William S. Hart Western. William S. Hart was a very big time Western star in the silent era. That film earned him recognition. And the following year, 1919, is when he first began to incorporate his makeup skills, which again were all self-taught uh, in a movie called The Miracle Man. And then uh, he followed this up with The Penalty in 1920, in which he plays an amputee. And that movie in particular, I mean, what he did to his body hmm. to give the impression that he was, you know, an amputee is, is mind boggling. He would essentially tie his legs behind, like below the knee, basically behind his legs in a special harness. And he could only wear it, I think, for like 10 minutes at a time. It was incredibly painful. It's indicative of what he did throughout his, his career with makeup work. For example, the Phantom of the Opera work, we know that, it, you know, his nose, that's, that's not makeup. That's his real nose. He basically put hooks in his nose 
and a string like you see in the old cartoons going over his head to give that impression. London After Midnight, the big eyes that he had was wires, basically pulling down his lids to give him that wide-eyed expression. He put himself through a tremendous amount of pain, but he did it because of his love for the craft and, and his makeup skills. I mean, clearly he was the first real special effects makeup artist in Hollywood. I mean, we all talk about, you know, the work that, you know, Jack Pierce did for, for Frankenstein. I watched a, a documentary not too long ago about special effects and several of the modern day legends, where I think Rick Baker, for example, you know, gave credits like Lon Chaney is the father of special effects makeup work. And he was self-taught. He did it all himself. His case still exists with all of the, the, the putty and the special uh, apparatuses and stuff that he was still using at the time of his death in 1930. And it all starts with the Miracle Man in 1919 and then especially the penalty in 1920. I don't know if this is a, a legend that has grown over time or or what, but I've read several places that, you know, he's rarely seen on the lot without his makeup case. And this is when he was a contract player at Universal. And of course, the movie plays up the fact that that's how he gets his first role is he makes himself up with a scar to play a pirate to get a bit part supporting role. And that that's kind of how his reputation grew. I don't know that there's any truth to that. I mean, you're certainly right that the physical body transformations started in 1919 with the miracle man. There's a three minute fragment that exists showing Lon Chaney in the faith healing sequence. Oh, good. That's the only part of that film. Most of Chaney's films are in need of some restoration to one extent or another. Unfortunately, because so many of them fall in the public domain, you're not seeing a lot of companies have come along and, and spent the time and effort. Everyone knows about like Hunchback of Notre Dame or Phantom of the Opera, which always get the love and attention. Some of the other films, you know, don't. So you will be able to find a lot of Lon Chaney's films out there in the public domain, just kind of buyer beware is the quality is going to be a bit rough around the edges on some of these films. Some of it is simply the quality of the print is in such bad shape that no amount of restoration will be able to, to really restore a lot of his great films that are. We're 1922. By this point, we're in the early 20s. Some of his popular roles at the time, he plays the role of Fagin in uh, Oliver Twist in 1922. I think that's the movie with young Jackie Coogan, I believe. Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. Jackie Coogan, of course, had been in the uh, the movie The Kid, Charlie Chaplin. The documentary actually has some archive footage of uh, Jackie Coogan talking about working with Lon Chaney on this film. Uh, another movie he did called Shadows in 1922, politically incorrect by today's terminology, but he plays an Asian character, Yen Sin, and I think I forget. I think his nickname is like the Heathen because he is like the only survivor of a, a ship crash, or there may be some other survivors. But there's a scene that's taking place on a beach or something, and of course everyone's kneeling down and praying to God, and well, he's not because he's he's Asian, and of course they say, well. Either you kneel or get out of here, you heathen. You know, we don't need your type around here. And 
I have not seen that movie. It does exist. And I am going to be watching it in the next month or so because it, his work in that looks amazing. And then Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923, of course, his work as Quasimodo is legendary. What he put his body through for that special effect makeup work is mind boggling. This brings us to 1924 and time to talk officially about our first film, He Who Gets Slapped. The height of his career, right? I mean, it's in between Hunchback and Phantom of the Opera would be coming up. This was an MGM film. This is really what got him in the door at MGM Mm -hmm. that he officially signs the contract and works exclusively for MGM from 1925 through the end of his life. This, of course, being the very first MGM film. Made, not first released, right? Correct. Yeah, first made. It ended up being released. They held it for the holiday season because they knew that it was going to be a big movie because of Lon Chaney. It was featured prominently in a documentary called When the Lion Roars, which was made in 1992 for TNT. It was narrated by Patrick Stewart. We watched that documentary. It's six hours long. It's an amazing documentary. Highly recommend you check it out. It was released on DVD about 20 years ago, out of print. You can find it on eBay. Do some checking around. You should not have to pay through the nose for it. Some people are charging outrageous prices, but others are charging much more reasonable. It's also included as an extra on a Wizard of Oz Blu-ray set that I got, along with a lot of other stuff. It's a great documentary. Highly recommend you check it out if you can get a copy of it. Lon Chaney gets featured prominently in it because, of course, he was such a big star. Such a fun movie. It was such a great movie to kind of start his career off at MGM. He Who Gets Slapped was directed by an old friend of ours, Richard, Victor Solstrom. He had directed The Phantom Carriage, which we've talked about and I believe both loved, at least I know I did. He also wrote it with Carrie Wilson. It was based on a play by Leonid Andreev. And I'm pretty sure I botched that. Leonid Andreev. Andreev. Yeah, Andreev. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and it starred uh, Lon Chaney. Oddly, Uh, Norma Shearer, John Gilbert, Ruth King, Mark McDermott, Ford Sterling, and Tully Marshall. It runs 95 minutes, and it was released on December 22nd, 1924. Richard, what did you think of He Who Gets Slapped? I loved it. This is my first time viewing. uh, And I actually think you might have seen more Lon Chaney movies going into this that I have, because you watched quite a few movies back in October during your countdown to Halloween. And I've seen some, but then as I started looking at the list of movies and I'm like, you know what? I, I, there's actually a lot that I haven't seen that have been kind of on my radar. I've loved all the Lon Chaney movies I've seen. There's definitely some, some big misses. And this was a big miss. This is one of his biggest movies from this time period and one that I never uh, never got a chance to see. And I watched a version off of YouTube, but it was actually a good copy. Uh, the print, visually, I should say, looked good. It was uh, off of Turner Classic Movies, so mm-hmm. it was a off-air recording, but it was good. My biggest problem with this movie, and we can dive into it a little bit later, was the soundtrack. It wasn't horrible all the way through, but... Part of the thing with silent films, as we've talked about before, is that a silent film can be made or broken by the score that you pair with it. 
when silent films had their kind of renaissance in the 1960s, and a lot of these films were getting, you know, released for television or were compilation comedy films that were coming out in the 1960s, were kind of rediscovering silent films. And they oftentimes would pair almost, I want to say almost comedic soundtracks to some of these films, sometimes adding special effects. This particular version added in the roar of a lion, obviously would not be in a proper score. Sometimes I'm okay with that, depending on how it's used and how it's done. Sometimes the score, it can kind of throw me out of the moment. This particular score was, to me, uneven. Sometimes I was okay with what I was hearing. Other times I felt like it wasn't quite in sync with what I was seeing on the screen. Much, much more the case in The Monster, which we'll talk about. This one, I'll say this numerous times, it deserves a good score. And a score can be, it can be piano, it can be an organ score, it can be an orchestral score. I'm good with any three versions of those. I think when you start getting into to music that tries to contemporize the film, that's when I start to have issues with what I'm hearing because it just doesn't sync up with what I'm seeing on the screen. And that happened to me a few times watching the film. That aside, what I was seeing on the screen and the story was really, really good. I loved it. Yeah, I did too. It, it's very artsy. I credit that to the director, similar to Phantom Carriage. Here, the, the recurring imagery seems to be the clown spinning this ball, and sometimes that sort of morphs into the globe. And I was not expecting that. That was good. Yeah. I thought. And that's pretty unique. Well, certainly for this batch of films to have sort of that artistic slant, that creative artistry versus just the flat out story. Well, I mean, that, that's a special effect of a kind. Uh, of a kind. And I think you will get that in some silent films. I mean, sometimes it almost feels like you're watching a stage production, especially with older films, very static camera work. In the month of March, I've been covering the films of Alice Guy Blachet over at the blog and Falling Leaves, which is a short film for the time period. I think that was 1912, I think. It is static camera work at times, but then there's some other really interesting camera angles where she really starts moving the camera and you're not just looking forward. Now the camera moves and you're looking like in a scene where this little girl is looking out the window and she's looking into the courtyard very cutting edge for 1912 you just didn't see that it took some very talented directors and cinematographers of the day to say look we've got these you know huge cameras and obviously we're limited to what we can do but there is some some different things we can do creatively within the film and and if you think about what we saw in the phantom carriage victor sostrom is is I think almost revolutionary for the time period, the work that that he he did in the Phantom Carriage and does here elevates the film for me. Those brief sequences, something very different, something I wasn't expecting, and I loved it. Lon Chaney plays Paul Beaumont. He's a scientist. He's working on some theories about the origin of life, and the man basically that's funding his experiments steals them and claims them to be his own, makes a big presentation, 
says that Paul Beaumont is, oh, just his assistant, didn't have anything really to do with it, and slaps him in front of everybody, which makes everybody laugh because that's really, really funny. And that's a, a recurring thing I want to talk about as we go through this is how funny people seem to think that is that somebody gets slapped. On top of that, his wife is sort of in cahoots with this benefactor and basically leaves Paul to go with him, leaving him destroyed. He runs off and joins the circus as a clown, and his big act is getting slapped by the other clowns. Let's talk about the clown thing, right? <laughs> I've never been a big fan of clowns. I don't, I'm not terrified of them like some people are, but to me, clowns. It can be annoying sometimes. I mean, it's like funny depending on the moment, but there is the, this whole thing of like abuse, right? Clowns always get abused, it seems like, or one clown is abusing another clown. And that's the whole thing, right? With Paul Beaumont and, and his clown persona, which is he, as in capital H, capital E, that's essentially his name. He's not Bozo. He's not Wizzo the clown. He's he, the clown. And his whole shtick is, slap me, keep smacking me around. And the crowd goes crazy and wild. And Carla watched this with me. She says, is that a thing? You know, and I said, it was a thing. Yeah, it's like some people find, oh, that's so, it's kind of like, it's an acquired taste. It's like, if you watch Jackass, right? Essentially, it is stupid people doing stupid stunts and brutalizing their body. Some people find it absolutely hilarious. And other people will sit there, such as me, and sit there and think, what the hell are they doing? Not necessarily my cup of tea, but I get some people love that about clowns. Probably more so back then. Clowns, I think, are a little less of a thing now. I think now clowns kind of go hand in hand with horror movies. I don't know. I mean, I think somewhere along the way, clowns quit being a thing that kids overly enjoyed. And now they've become like the crazed killers in horror films. Bozo the Clown was a huge show when you and I were younger. I said Wizzo. No one outside of the Topeka, Kansas area will remember Wizzo. He had a show in Topeka. And I didn't grow up in Topeka, but whenever I would visit my sister, and when we, early days of cable, we had Channel 13, WIBW out of Topeka, and there was Wizzo the Clown. He was a low rent bozo, and, but he, he lasted for years and kids loved him. And, uh, you know, well, let's take our kids down to the Wizzo taping and it's on TV. And he was like a bozo, played cartoons and did sticks. And, you know, I don't think I understand clowns. I mean, to me, there's a sadness to them. And even the makeup here that Lon Chaney, I mean, it's not funny makeup. It's sad. And so there's something sad about clowns. And like you said, I know some people are horrified of them and I don't know if they had traumatic childhood experiences with them or if they just think they're creepy or what but they certainly seem to strike a, a wide range of emotions in people if you are triggered by clowns this is not the movie for you because <laughs> no. there is literally like a whole parade of clowns that come out playing their musical instruments and if you're terrified of one clown you're having massive heart failure at one point in this movie when we see movies like this it is kind of a time capsule for the time period. And you're right. He is a sad clown. He seems to be happy to an extent when he's not out there because, I mean, he's kind of found his uh, a reason to exist after being humiliated in front of his peers. Things 
take a dark turn when he sees Baron Reynard. If a Venn diagram was triangles instead of circles, there would be like these two love triangles that intersect here because our hero falls in love with Consuela at the circus, played by Norma Shearer. Well, she's in a relationship with the horseback rider, Bizano, and yet here comes the Baron, ironically, trying to insert himself into that relationship, which never mind what that means because he was with the other's wife and now seems to be going away from her. So there's that love triangle. And then uh, the one with Paul and Consuela and Zano. So it's very interesting to me, those relationships and how they intersect and contradict each other and yet work together. And I think that's sort of the, at least for me, what I really liked about this. This movie is not a straightforward horror movie. Oh, no, no. Uh, it's more of a um, psychological thriller, I think. Yeah. His heart, you know, is for Consuelo, but her heart's for somebody else. And he's got that measure of revenge, hating not only the Baron, because the Baron, of course, is wanting essentially to buy Consuelo, but also then his eventual hatred towards Count Mancini, because how dare you sell your daughter? And so that becomes where Paul is like, okay, you know, I'm not going to get Consuelo. You know, I think he's almost resigned to the facts. And now I'm, he's going to focus on, I don't care anymore. I want the Baron and the Count to suffer. That's where the psychological thriller part of it really kind of comes into play because you're kind of witnessing a guy who's had this trauma and he would have been okay, you know, if he wouldn't have fallen in love with Consuelo. She says, well, you're going to leave us soon. And, and go on, no, why would I? You know, I'm happy here. Everything was okay. And then everything falls apart very rapidly. And he, and he begins to unravel as we work our way to the big climax of the film. It's, it's intense. Uh, it's, it's absolutely intense. And I don't know that we want to give it away because I want people to discover this movie and to see where things go in that final act. Pretty graphic in a way for 1924. Yes. I mean, the way things play out, it's that, is the movie going to have a happy ending? In a way, yes, it does. In a way, no, it doesn't. It depends on, on the character. There's a happiness for some, not for others. I love the way things played out. The sequence, as we get to the climax, and I won't say what it involves, but the speed of the film I was talking about earlier is that the, the speed is, is a little off in certain aspects of this movie. And so it almost comes across if it was moving a little slower at the frame rate where it was supposed to be, it would end up looking a little better, I think. The version that I watched was 70 minutes. The running time was 95 minutes. Now, there's approximately 10 minutes missing from the film. And so you're still dealing with roughly four or five minutes where the frame rate throws things off. And so if the movie was going a little slower, things would look a little less rushed because there is some things in that climax where it did seem like it was moving not as realistic. It didn't look as realistic. I think the 10 minutes that are missing, from what I understand, a lot of it, I think, comes from some different segments. I don't know that there's any like one particular moment of the film because I'm trying to think of any point in time where there's a big jump I know that's the case with the unknown when we get to that, that there is missing footage from the unknown. 
and that there's basically two things in that that would potentially change that movie, I mm. think, quite a bit. It still plays off very well. And honestly, the 71 minute running time still ends up yeah, telling a story. And I don't think there's, there's anything really significant missing from it, at least that I can tell. And I agree with you. Let's not talk about the end. I, although I'm curious, and maybe someone can give feedback if they've seen it or if they watch it based on our discussion, the very, very ending. We talked about the clowns spinning the globe and everything. There's something that happens. I want to discuss that with somebody. <laughs> so uh, maybe when we're done, we can circle. Yeah, back I know. I know that. what you're talking about because I th- I saw the same thing and I'm like, oh, yeah. It just kind of casts a whole like. Well, I mean, this is a very sad movie. I mean, I, I'm not meaning like it's going to depression. You're going to sit there and weep, but it's just the situation sad and and. Here's the, the scene I really like. Consuela can tell literally that he is, you know, sad. And he asks, why is he so sad? And he, she tells him, well, if you were in love, you wouldn't be. Well, of course, ironically, he is in love. And, yeah. you know, he hasn't told her. That he path. does take that minute to confess to her that he does love her. And she laughs and thinks he's joking and yeah. slaps him. Just like he gets slapped during the yeah. show. There's layers in meaning there that, I don't even think I can comprehend. So well done, so well put together, so much there. And in some of it, you've just got a great cast. So maybe let's let's talk about some of the cast because we're talking about these great characters. Nora Shearer, we mentioned her, she plays Consuelo. She featured prominently in that MGM documentary because she would marry Irving Thalberg in 1927, who was one of the powerhouse leaders of MGM. She was also a multi-time nominated Academy Award actress. She had a total of six nominations, and she won an Oscar for The Wild Divorcee in 1930. So she had a, a period of time where she was just incredibly prolific. She made the transition from silent to sound, which many did not. Her career definitely changed when Irving Thalberg died suddenly in the mid-1930s. When that happened... Norma Shearer is best remembered for her time in the 20s and early 1930s. John Gilbert, who plays Bazzano, was one of the most prominent silent film stars. He did 102 films between 1915 and 1934, including some very big films. He was a heartthrob. He was on the level of, of a uh, Rudolph Valentino. Um, he did The Big Parade in 1925. Love in 1927. I'm going to butcher the name or the, or the pronunciation, but Bartley's The Magnificent in 1926. Unfortunately, he went from being this major MGM star to not being able to make that transition to sound. His voice actually wasn't that bad, but the transition kind of threw him. He had a, an experience where kind of several things he transitioned to sound. He had a romance where he was essentially left at the altar. And he then, of course, in the midst of all this, became an alcoholic. And it really crippled his career with the arrival of sound. His last film was a 1934 film called The Captain Hates the Sea. I think I have that movie. I've never seen it. I have it only because it has a cameo by the Three Stooges, Larry Moe and Curly, Right before they started headlining their own short subjects, 
they did do some cameo appearances in films uh, and they played musicians on a ship. That was the end of his career. He uh, died of a heart attack two years later in 1936 at the age of 38, but a legendary silent film star. Ruth King played Marie Beaumont. Not a lot from her, 23 films. She only did six more movies after this. Her last was in 1926, but she would live another uh, 20 years, but she did die young herself. She died in 1946 at the age of 47. Mark McDermott played Baron Renard, very prolific, 218 films. His last actually came just a few years later, 1928. He died in 1929 at the age of 57 of cirrhosis of the liver. The studios did kind of a big cover-up and claimed that he was sick and hospitalized and he had had a gallbladder operation that failed years later when it became public knowledge, his death certificate. And there was a doctor that confirmed actually that, no, actually, he had been under doctor's care at home and and was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. The studio tried to cover that up because that was negative. Even though he was passed, they wanted to cover it up. Ford Sterling plays the uh, character of, ooh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Traco. I think he was one of the other clowns. Mm -hmm. Um, 281 films, character actor. He died at a young age, 1939, at the age of 55 of a heart attack. And finally, The Count, Count Mancini, played by Tully Marshall, 196 films, including The Cat and the Canary from 1927, and he worked with Boris Karloff in the original Scarface in 1932. The only other thing I have, you mentioned the screenplay by Carrie Wilson. Some of the other things that Carrie Wilson did, Mutiny on the Bounty, 1935, a lot of the films for the Andy Hardy film series and the Dr. Kildare film series. And he was also one of the writers for the Marx Brothers' first two films at MGM, Night at the Opera in 1935 and A Day at the Races in 1937. One cast member that I didn't mention that somebody out there is probably saying, but hey, you forgot to mention Bela Lugosi. This is controversial. There are those who believe that Bela Lugosi appears in this film as a clown and as one of the uh, like Professor Beardo uh, who was in the uh, audience that laughs at Paul Beaumont in the beginning of the film. There is no official confirmation that Lugosi ever appeared in it. It seems to stem from someone discovering a picture of Lugosi as a clown and for some reason felt like that belonged with he who gets slapped. I don't know. I looked at the film still. I don't see Lugosi. In my opinion, Lugosi is not in this film. And that seems to be the general consensus. But there are those who seem to insist that Lugosi is in it. And I would have to respectfully disagree. If you want to get this film, it is easy to find out there. Like I said, it's on YouTube. The score is a bit troublesome. You can rent it on Amazon Prime, but it's in a ghoulish edition which tells me somebody did something to it that you shouldn't see. Let's not even bother with that. It is available on Warner Archive DVD for $10, or much better, you can go with the Lon Chaney collection from the Warner Archive. You can get it for $30. 
And it also includes the movies Mockery, Mr. Wu, The Monster, and both versions of The Unholy Three. It's a little hard to find on Amazon the way they have it listed. So if you search for it, look for Lon Chaney, W-A-C Collection, and then you will find the listing. Weird the way they did that, but it's out there for $30 and, and you're getting what? One, two, three, four, five, six films for $30. I don't know what the soundtrack or the score is on the Warner Archive. I'm willing to bet it's probably the same one that we have because this hasn't been properly restored and there's not an, a different score with it that I've been able to find. That's probably the best way for you to get a hold of it. And I would recommend that you add it to your collection. There was a quote that I wanted to share. Lon was interviewed by Movie Magazine. The quote is uh, in relation to kind of the characters he was playing in, in films at this time. He was Because by this point, he had already earned the reputation. And I want to say maybe this was after Phantom of the Opera. I don't know the timing of it. But the quote is, I wanted to remind people that the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. The dwarfed, misshapen beggar of the streets may have the noblest ideals. That really, I think, tells you the mindset that he had with these characters. He wasn't just looking to play grotesque characters. And, you know, he did a lot of films of Todd Browning. And Todd Browning is an interesting individual. And his films... Obviously, the, the characters that Lon Chaney played in them, they were a little darker, a little more twisted. Chaney often gets thought of as like this, he's like this legitimate horror film star. When really you look at it, the number of true horror films that Lon Chaney did actually were far outweighed by movies in which he just played characters that were in makeup, but not necessarily a horror character maybe dark, maybe twisted, but not in a true horror film sense. The Monster, which is the next movie we're going to talk about, is one of those that I think truly does fit into the, to the horror film category for the most part. But it's a movie that is struggles with trying to identify what it wants to be, depending on what point in the film you're watching it. But The Monster is, I think, one of those that can much more easily fit into a horror category as opposed to He Who Gets Slapped, which is, as I said, much more psychological thriller. Definitely not horror. But the monster kind of fits that mold, again, depending at what point you're watching the film. Years ago when we were kids, our mothers used to say, the boogeyman will get you if you don't obey. He's hiding in the closet, so be careful what you do. Borrow in the pillows, pull the covers over So the monster, it was directed by Roland West. And I have a feeling you're going to have a story there uh, to tell. 
when yes. we get to it. It was also written by West, Willard Mack, and Albert Kenyon. It's based on another stage play. This name, I think I will be able to pronounce a little better than the other one, Crane Wilbur. I think I did that all right. I think you did well. Besides Lon Chaney, it has Gertrude Olmsted and Hallam Cooley. Runs 86 minutes and was released on March 16th, 1925. This was not my first time watching The Monster. I watched this for the first time, I believe, 11 years ago. I recorded it off Turner Classic Movies back in 2011. That's the version that I watched. Interestingly enough, it's always fun to watch those off-air recordings, which is why sometimes I don't automatically do an upgrade, because I love watching the old Turner Classic Movie intros. Interestingly enough, Robert Osborne was not on it. He was, it was during one of his sabbaticals that he took. He was having some health problems, I think, for a while there. Then he kind of came back. He lost a lot of weight when he came back. But it was quite a while before his, his passing. Whoever the new host, the new primary host on Turner Classic Movies. This was in his early stages with Turner Classic because he looked quite a bit younger. He was the one introducing it. The first thing that really struck me with this was the score. And this one by far is the most bizarre of the three films because, and partially the movie, the start of the film, I mean, right out of the gate, you're like, Ooh, this looks dark and creepy car driving on, on a road, a creeper hanging out in the, in the trees. And they're like putting a mirror down in the road to call the car to swerve and go off in the ditch. And you got all these creepy guys crawling out and doing all this stuff. Oh, this is great. And then, hey, we're, we're into Johnny Goodlittle Comedy Hour all of a sudden. And the music, Carla said, are we watching a Harold Lloyd comedy here? Mm-hmm. It's like, it really was. The music was so out of character with what you would expect with a movie. And even if I'm thinking like in the 30s and 40s, we would get a lot of old dark house comedy horror films. Even those movies the music always at least tried to stay kind of creepy, even when you're doing some comedic segments. And those movies, right, you always had, it was the detective or it was the photographer or the newspaper reporter who was kind of playing off, you know, Bob Hope kind of played that role several times. None of those would have like the full-blown slapstick comedy music that the print I watched have. And I think yours was probably... I think we said it was the same print that really was kind of throwing me out. Now, once we get past that, once we get into what is essentially an old dark house film, I mean, this was one of the very first old dark house films. It was also one of the first mad scientist films. Once we get into that mode, then everything kind of went more in sync. And then the movie decides to go down a different path when you have the, the climax of the film, it's like, oh, we're back to doing a little slapstick comedy. And that's where I think this movie doesn't get as much love or as much recognition as some of the other Cheney horror films, because it's this movie is almost like two films. It's almost like you've got a, a short subject going on, that's the bookends, and then you've got a horror movie in the middle. Quite honestly, the two different elements don't sync up very well, in my opinion. The two different styles don't blend and ultimately hurt the film from being as good as it could be. 
Oh, I agree 100%. And that's interesting because I'm iffy on horror comedies to start with. They don't often work well for me. Usually, it's the comedy elements I just I don't even like to start with. The odd thing about this is I really like the two separate things. I mean, I think this is a good comedy. I laughed and I enjoyed it on its own, but together, no. Johnny Goodlittle, played by Johnny Arthur, actually did do other comedic work. I mean, looking at his some of the other films, he did 102 films and quite a few of them were comedies. He did a film in 1934 called The Ghost Walks, which was a slash horror comedy kind of thing. But he was also in Arbolations with Laurel and Hardy in 1936. He had a natural, some natural comedic tendencies. His last film actually is, is a movie that pops up on, on the holiday cycle of films. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it happened on Fifth Avenue, 1947. It's not on the level of a miracle on 34th Street or, you know, it's a wonderful life. But Turner Classic kind of brought it back to life, I think, probably 15 years ago, at least. And uh, it's part of the annual cycle of, of Christmas films that they play. And it's a fun, heartwarming little little film. He's got a minor role in it. We're looking at 20 years later. He That's his last film. That was his shtick. He was more of a comedic. And then clearly he could fit into the horror parts of the movie well, still doing that kind of slapstick performance. It went much more smoothly together with all the other horror aspects going on in the story once we get introduced to Dr. Siska, which is Lon Chaney's character. I mean, case in point, we're 30 minutes into the movie before we get to see Lon Chaney. His appearance in the film And he's is, not really in it that much. No. I mean, he really is, is more of a supporting character in some ways. Top build. And certainly when he's on screen, the focus is on him. I mean, he's clearly the lead. His debut entrance is amazing, a lot of fun, but admittedly, not the most challenging role for, for Cheney, not the most memorable, but what he had to work with, he did incredibly well. And I think that's what kind of elevates the movie. I think if it wasn't Cheney in that lead role, if it was just Joe Average, the movie probably would be one of those silent films that would be kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit, but because Cheney's in it, the movie gets kind of elevated. It's good. I enjoy it, but it's not necessarily a great film. It's fun. Carla loved this the most out of the three films because it's not as dark as the other two films are. And of course, as we know, Carla doesn't gravitate towards dark films. She really loved this one. And she said she would watch it again. And I would too. But looking at like the other work and Cheney's films that I haven't seen yet, there's definitely a lot of films that I want to I want to check out before I revisit the monster again. I will at some point down the road, but for now I want to discover some of Cheney's other films, which include some darker performances. I don't disagree with you about Cheney, but for me, even he didn't stand out. You mentioned his entrance. I'm trying to think, well, what was that? I mean, I just don't remember. I was very disappointed that that's all he had to do in this movie. But yet, I remember our main character. I remember Johnny Goodlittle in his correspondence course to become a detective and him getting his kit. That was charming and, and delightful and fun. And yeah, it was. That's what I took from the movie. I 
Was this is your first time viewing? Yes. You? Okay. I guess for me, I knew the dark house elements to it. And so I knew that was the best part. I had forgotten how much of the other stuff there was in it. And so even I, as I was working my way through, I'm like, when do we get to back to it? As like, it seems like it's taken a lot longer to get to it than I remember. This is a movie where, I mean, it, it could be shorter. What you've got from a story element wise is not enough to fill the running time. I think you could easily eliminate some of the comedic segments and you could also speed the story along a little bit. When we get to the old dark house, that would help the movie. I think it would help it quite a bit. And I am hard pressed to even think what experiments was Dr. Ziska working on? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. yeah, you know, he, he was setting up these and I love the elaborate. Yes. You mentioned the way that they set up the accidents to get their test subjects, but what are they testing? What are they, why are they doing that? It, it may have well explained it, but I do not remember. And I watched it two days ago. I'm sitting here trying to remember specifically what his experiments were. And I'm not sure that it really detailed it. Well, if it did, it was so minor, you know, really it was atmosphere. Well, and I guess that speaks volumes, right? Because it was not really the main thrust of the story. We were going mostly for the comedic parts and Johnny Goodlittle, the wannabe private investigator. And, you know, ooh, then we're going to have some, some cool imagery and we've got the back and forth comedic elements between Johnny and the constable. And then you got kind of the romance of sort between Amos and Betty, but that was really not a major part. And whenever the character of Caliban came on, of course, Walter James playing the big strong man. I mean, that was fun. You know, I mean, when he would pop up on screen, he looked menacing and, ooh, there's, there's this big guy. A lot of it was visual eye candy with a lack of substance. I don't know that it matters what the experiment was or what they were doing. I mean, it's an old dark house. It's spooky. It's scary. There's people locked in the basement, a mad scientist. That's all you really need to know. You don't really need to know the details. When you look at the cast, you know, you've got Gertrude Olmsted. Of course, that's not necessarily a household word. And really, she did 62 films from 1920 to 1929. This is really what she's most remembered for. She did appear in Mr. Wu, along with Lon Chaney. She retired in 1929 um, at the age of uh, 29. Like many other actresses, I think she got married and that was it. She left Hollywood. Hallam Cooley played Amos Rugg. He was in 106 films. The only other notable film that, that, that immediately caught my eye was Soup to Nuts, 1930, which was the first theatrical film and actually first film appearance of the Three Stooges. He did a lot of comedy shorts. He might be another one of those silent film stars that maybe, you know, there's some work there that needs to be rediscovered right offhand as a name doesn't ring a bell with me. Johnny Arthur played Johnny Goodlittle. We talked about him. He did 112 films. Charles Seelan played the constable. He looked familiar, and I started looking at, at his film list. He was a character actor, did 112 films. He worked with Harold Lloyd in a movie called The Cat's Paw in 1934, which is probably where I recognize him. He also worked with W.C. Fields that year in a movie called It's a Gift, which is one of his best films. And then Walter James, playing the character of Caliban, 
character tough guy appears in a lot of films. He did 60 films, uh, including several Harold Lloyd films. So I recognized him having watched all those Harold Lloyd films last year. A decent enough cast, not as impressive as we got with He Who Gets Slapped. So I think that kind of goes hand in hand with what we have to work with in, in The Monster. I think for me, honestly, the most interesting aspect of The Monster is the director, Roland West. Do you have anything else to, to add? Nope. About the I, I'm, I want to hear about it. Okay. I saw a so, name that we've talked about before. We, we did. And uh, so some of this may ring a bell. So I'll just kind of go in this briefly. Roland West, he's known for a couple of other big films. He did The Bat in 1926, the movie, of course, which is the inspiration for Batman. And a movie called The Bat Whispers in 1930, which I have wanted to see that movie for a very long time. I have a copy of it, but I've never watched it. He retired in 1931, and he went into business with his ex-wife and actress, Jewel Carmen, and his girlfriend at the time, Thelma Todd, who was well-known in comedy short films as, as well as early sound films. She appeared with the Marx Brothers and Charlie Chase, Laurel and Hardy. So that right off the bat, right? I mean, you're going into business with your ex-wife and your current girlfriend, that in itself is interesting. They owned a restaurant uh, in Santa Monica called Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe. They lived in an apartment ab above the restaurant and Thelma Todd's mother lived in the neighborhood close by and also Jewel Carmen lived in the neighborhood close by. Uh, that's way too many people in close proximity. <laughs> The restaurant was kind of a known hangout for gangsters and, and various shady characters, if you will. There's a lot of thought that some of the mob was putting some pressure on Thelma Todd and Roland West to get them introduced to some Hollywood types who were frequenting the restaurant. Roland West looks to be that he was probably involved with the mob to one degree or another. Thelma Todd seemingly was kind of going along for the ride. Not a healthy relationship, certainly. And sadly, in 1935, Thelma Todd was found slumped over the steering wheel of her car, the engine still running in the garage, not at, not at her house. I'm trying to remember if it was her mother's house or Jewel Carmen's house. It was ruled as basically an accidental suicide, if you will. They, they tried to spin it off as a suicide, but then it was accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. There was not a note found. So that's where they didn't really, couldn't really rule it as suicide. Hollywood did their best to cover it up because that's what the movie studios did at the time. Thelma Todd was supposed to appear in uh, Laurel and Hardy's film, The Bohemian Girl in 1936. She ended up having almost all of her footage cut because the studio didn't want the scandal of having her involved in it. A lot of people believed that she was either uh, murdered by gangsters or possibly murdered by Roland West himself. There was some talk about that Roland West may have done a, like a deathbed confession when he died, which I, I think was in the late 40s. But all that's kind of unconfirmed. And, and so it's, it's a big Hollywood mystery to this day. It never did get officially solved. 
And what I thought was kind of interesting is that the boat that he and Thelma owned and would take Hollywood stars out on, which is kind of tied into where the gangsters wanted to basically get the goods on some of these Hollywood stars so they could kind of do some blackmailing. The boat was kind of going to be the point of like, let's get the people out in the boat and we'll go out and, you know, get them drunk and try to do some blackmailing. That was kind of the whole thought of the mob. After Roland West's death, the boat was actually sold. And later in the 1950s, the boat went missing. The, the new owners of the boat, they went basically on a three-hour tour and, and they were never heard or seen from again. Mm. The boat went never found and they never found any bodies. Kind of bizarre, even that little piece connected to Roland West and Velma Todd right to the very end is kind of weird and controversial. That is the story of, of Roland West. The whole Thelma Todd thing is, is a story that fascinates me. She was a, a really fun comedian and a very unfortunate, tragic end. And, and I, after seeing numerous documentaries and things on it, I'm very much confirmed that she did not commit suicide. I think she was murdered. The question is, who murdered her? Was it the mob or was it her, her boyfriend? And that part's a little, little hazy or maybe a combination thereof. That probably is where Roland West is more remembered for is the controversy than the few little contributions he made because he only directed 14 films. Three that fall into the horror category, but that controversy with Thelma Todd is what he's most remembered by. It is public domain, so it is relatively easy to find. You can rent it for $2 on Amazon Prime. You can buy the DVD from Warner Archive for $10, or it's part of that Lon Chaney WAC collection on Amazon for $30, paired with Mockery and Mr. Wu and the Unholy Three and He Who Gets Slapped. That's probably what I would recommend that you get that. It is on YouTube, and actually, there's a different score with it. I wish I would have known that before I watched it. At some point down the road, uh, revisit it with that different score. That's on YouTube right now. If uh, you are wanting to see it free of charge, that's probably the best way to do it. What was next for Cheney? What happened in the next couple of years before our last movie? By 1925, of course, he is uh, under contract to MGM. So he is doing some big films. One of the biggest, of course, is The Unholy Three in 1925. This is the silent version. He did the sound version of this as well. I'll pause here. Now. Is this what you saw, the silent or sound version of this last Silent. Time? What did you think of the silent version? Uh, it's not one of my favorites. It's of all of the Cheney films I saw, I would say it's my least favorite. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad. It just, I did not like it as much as the others. It was just a weird, a little too weird <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, he would be playing an old woman. He would, that's how he would disguise himself and be convincing as that. And it just didn't work. What do you think of it? You know, it's been so long since I've seen it. As sad as it is to say, I don't have any recollection of it. It is one of the movies I'm going to be covering over um, on the blog during the month of April. I'm kind of itching to watch that in the, in the sound version. To me, they're almost going to be like first time viewing because uh, I just don't remember much about it. He did a movie, uh, another movie in 1925 called The Tower of Lies. That is a lost film. Uh, he did The Blackbird in 1926. That's another one I've seen, and I liked it quite a bit. 
We did The Road to Mandalay in 1926. Have you seen that one? No. You hear about that one a lot. I'm very curious about that one. I have not seen it. I... I'm trying to think now, do I have a copy of it? And I do not. So I'm going to have to, I know there's a lot of these films on, on YouTube. You just have to make sure you get a good print. I do really want to see this next one. Tell it to the Marines, 1926. No makeup work in this one. He plays basically a drill sergeant. I remember my dad commenting about this film. My dad was a Marine and he said that he really enjoyed it. Never really have had an opportunity to see it. Over the years, it's been on Turner Classic with somewhat regularity. I, for whatever reason, I guess I've had the opportunity. I've just never recorded it and sat down to watch it. Uh, but he was made an honorary Marine. That's how impressive uh, or how impressed the Marines were. I want to see Mr. Wu, which he did in 1927. Uh, I've seen some clips. I've got a really interesting print of this. It is the print, apparently, it's on YouTube was off of a Turner Classic movie broadcast. The, whoever uploaded it, uploaded their own score to it. And I'm watching like the opening credits. I was just trying to see, you know, is this a good copy? Do I want to save this? And the music immediately, I'm like, I know this music. If you've ever seen The Outer Limits and an episode called The 100 Days of the Dragon, which is one where the mysterious... Asian country is like doing plastic surgery and they're replacing the president and they're planning to replace all of these key figures. There's music in that that is so freaking amazing. They use that in the opening credits for Mr. Wu. And it's mm. like, I know this isn't legit, but I'm like, I love it. And I'm like, <laughs> the makeup work in that is amazing. That's a movie that's been on my radar for a long time. So then we get to, I'm taking a look here. I think what, what's next we're 1927. Yeah. So in 1927. Well, before the- we go any further, first of all, let's let's take another break. This is an unusual episode. We don't have yeah. our normal breaks. But when we come back, you've just got to tell me what in the world was going on in 1927. Well, you know, we've never done a 1927 film before. So it was pretty easy when we do these old 1920s films. I'm like, I can come up with a year that we haven't done before. I can't um, wait to hear how much a loaf of bread costs. <laughs> now, folks, if you'll just gather around a little closer now, come right in a little closer. That's it. That's fine. That's fine, folks. Now, then, if you'll be real quiet, I'll see if I can get the little boy to say something. Well, how are you today, Tommy? Oh, I'm feeling fine, thank you. Well, that's fine. Now, what are you going to sing for the folks today? She was a butterfly's daughter. Oh, you're going to sing she was a butterfly's daughter. She was a butterfly, not she? But he was a serenity. <laughs> 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 well, how'd you like to hear a Sweet Rosie O'Grady? Oh, Sweet Rosie O'Grady. One of the good old-fashioned songs, huh? Well, that's fine. I'm sure the folks would like to hear that. So, all right, let her go, Tommy. And we are back. It is 1927. A lot going on in the world in 1927. But you know one thing that wasn't happening in 1927? Was Queen Elizabeth not the queen? Uh, She was not the queen. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. There is no Queen Elizabeth in 1927. We we won't say that very often on this show, but the actual (laughs) king of England was King George V. He reigned from 1910 to 1936. So he was 
what, 17 years in the middle of his reign. So roughly about the halfway mark, give or take. President was Calvin Coolidge. You wanted to know how much a loaf of bread was. Loaf of bread was seven cents. Mm. Here's something interesting. A pound of steak was 26 cents. Today in the wonderful world of 2022 inflation, if you want to get a sirloin steak, it is currently $11.39 a pound. Gas was 21 cents a gallon. This is also interesting. When you add in inflation, that would equal, as of 2020, $3.11 a gallon. So actually, not really that far off from where we are right now, to be honest with you. In 1904, the world's population hit 1 billion for the first time, and it had taken 123 years for it to to reach that point. It only took 33 years for it to double to to over 2 million. Today, the world's population is officially 7,963,952,577. I don't know how you get that precise. It's projected by the year 2100, Earth's population is expected to reach 10.8 billion. So we are seeing a slowdown in the growth of humanity. A little tidbit there about population, more than anyone wanted to know. The World Series champions were the New York Yankees. The Time Magazine Man of the Year was Charles Lindbergh. Acquired that for traveling nonstop on the Spirit of St. Louis on May 20th and 21st from New York to Paris. S'mores were invented in 1927, and the recipe was first published in a Girl Scouts magazine. Pez candy was invented originally to help people quit smoking. Uh, Hmm. It would not become, I think, the first Pez uh, dispenser. Dispenser, thank you, wouldn't come about for another 20 years, and it would be another 30 years before it would really start to be marketed towards kids. Hmm. Okay, here's an interesting little thing, and I, I found this really funny. Walt Disney presented the idea of Mickey Mouse and Mickey Mouse cartoons to MGM. MGM rejected the idea, telling Walt Disney this is never going to fly because a giant mouse would frighten women. Flash forward about 20 years, give or take, I think actually maybe maybe around 1950, they talked about this in the MGM documentary when they were doing that infamous scene between Gene Kelly and Jerry Mouse. There was a dancing sequence that's Mm. kind of very popular. Originally, they wanted Mickey Mouse in that scene And of course, by that point, Walt Disney was doing his own films. They went to Walt Disney. Hey, can we use Mickey Mouse in this MGM film? And he said, absolutely not. Mickey Mouse will never appear in an MGM movie. The documentary, which was clearly leaning towards MGM, failed to mention the reason why. That's because he was rejected 20 years earlier. And that's a pretty good reason why he would say no. And that's ultimately why... Jerry Mouse had his 15 minutes of really cinematic fame and poor Tom got left on the sidelines. Is Mickey Mouse, I always thought he was mouse-sized. Is he human-sized? They were thinking like the giant mouse on the screen. Oh, okay. women. Yeah, pretty lame. And clearly MGM was wrong. 
The Harlem Globetrotters were founded in 1927, yet they would not play a home game in Harlem until 1968. <laughs> a fire started in the Laurier Palace Theater in Montreal, Canada, and killed 78 children. This resulted in a ban prohibiting children under the age of 16 from being able to attend movie theaters in the city of Montreal. And that ban wasn't lifted until 1961. Hmm. Top songs of the day included I'm Looking Over a Four-Leaf Clover. And I'm not going to mention the artist because back then someone might record it first, but then a gazillion other artists would record it. So I'm Looking Over a Four-Leaf Clover, Blue Skies, which is a, a song that has become, if you're a Trekkie, you know that song quite well. Stardust, Me and My Shadow, and a song that I'm not sure I've ever heard, but I have to seek it out now, Potato Head Blues by <laughs> Louis Armstrong. Hmm. Top movies of the day included The General with Buster Keaton, Metropolis, Napoleon, another Lon Chaney film that we'll talk about later, London After Midnight, the first Academy Award-winning film, Wings, and the first sound motion picture, The Jazz Singer. And this was the first true sound motion picture. Previous attempts were with synchronized sound. That's what was happening in 1927. What were the top television shows? I did not have the top TV shows. And in fact, I can't Man, even really you're slacking you. on your research. You know, I, I can't even tell you what the top radio show, shows were in 1927. The Unknown was directed by Todd Browning. So that is one of the eight or ten movies that they worked on together, he and Lon Chaney. Written by Valdemar Young. Besides Chaney, it starred Norman Carey, Joan Crawford, little-known actress that wouldn't really do much with herself, and Nick DeRuiz. Running time was 63 minutes, and it was released on June 24th, 1967. Richard, tell me your thoughts on The Unknown. <laughs> What'd I say? You said June 24th, 1967. <gasps> That's what I have there. How about 1927? I'm sorry. God, thank you. God. Not even thinking when I'm talking. <laughs> This was not a first-time viewing for me. Uh, again, I saw this movie roughly 11 years ago. I think I've seen it before then, actually. I'm thinking now. I, I think I had this on VHS back in the day. I think this was one of my very first Lon Chaney movies, besides Hunchback and, and Phantom. This, this may have been like the third one that I saw. So this is probably my third or fourth time seeing it. It is a dark film in, in many ways, You got to know when I was watching this with Carla and we get to that climax scene and she starts looking at the horses and she says, oh, dear God, she says, we're not going there, are we? And I said, well, and she says, I don't think I can watch this. And I said, well, it doesn't end necessarily how you think it's going to. I said, but it gets intense. Lon Chaney and Todd Browning working together. They did some dark stuff. But I do really enjoy this movie. Lon Chaney is, is really good as uh, Alonzo, the armless man, what he puts his body through to very convincingly come across that he doesn't have arms. Of course, as we discover early in the film, he does have arms. There's a reason why he's, he's essentially hiding the fact that he has arms because he has two thumbs and he has committed some crimes 
so now he's basically hiding out. And so he hides his arms in this contraption, basically like a corset almost that he has to have put on by his kind of friend and man Friday, Kojo. I love how when he comes out of it the first time, he's like shaking his arms and he's rubbing his arms. I mean, very convincingly giving the ideas like, yeah, his arms would be <laughs> no circulation, would be asleep, essentially. I thought that was a fun little little detail that he threw in. A film that's got, you know, an interesting uh, supporting cast, a dark story that I think would have been even darker if some of the missing footage would still exist. There's approximately 14 minutes of footage. For a long time, the running time for this movie uh, was like, I think, 48 minutes. I think once they corrected the, the speed and such, it put it at the right running time. Well, you know, what we have left of the film. Surprisingly, the 14 minutes of footage that is missing doesn't hurt the film. The film really does play out and you do have a complete story. What's missing is essentially some supporting footage that would have enhanced the story. Footage from the beginning of the film where we would have seen Alonzo's criminal career mm. and we would have seen why he was hiding out. I don't think it's necessary to the way the film plays out. We know that he's committed a crime. It would have probably enhanced the characterization of Alonzo. I mean, I think we probably would have seen him as much more of a criminal element. We would have been able to see what he was capable of doing. And even more so later on in the film, when he does make the decision, jumping ahead in the story a little bit, but when he does make the decision that he is going to remove his arms, and that's the only way that he feels like he can win the heart of Nanan, that you've got Kojo, who is his right-hand man in a large part of the film, and he's there with him when he goes to this doctor. And then the post-surgery, the doctor and, and Kojo disappear. That's because in the original script and story, he killed them both. He killed the doctor because the doctor, of course, knew his secret and Kojo knew his secret. That's why we don't see Kojo come back with him. What we have works, but if that footage was in the finished film... It would definitely make Alonzo a much more hated character because Kojo didn't deserve that. He was helping and he was trying to tell Alonzo along the way, he's like, you can't do this. You can't start a relationship. She's going to realize you have arms. And I think it's interesting when we get to that scene towards the end of the film where Alonzo has come back and he doesn't have arms now. And Nanan embraces him and she kind of gets this look and he has this panic. All of a sudden it's like, what, you know, what's going on? She recognizes you've lost weight. Have you been sick? She gets concerned by it. Of course, she has no connection that well, you had arms before. Now you don't. To her, he's just simply lost weight because she can put her arms around him more. You had to know if Kojo was still alive there would have been some exchange of glances between Alonzo and Kojo. And we just don't get any explanation as to what happened. It would have made Alonzo even more despised than he really is. Cause he, he, he's pretty twisted in this movie the whole time. It's like, 
you just want to say, dude, you're not thinking this whole thing through. I mean, there's no way you can have a relationship with her because she's going to realize what you've done. And, you know, until he comes up with this brilliant idea, I'll cut my arms off for real. Well, let's explain what, why that is. For some reason, Nanan, Joan Crawford cannot stand the touch of a man. I'm not really sure why it seems like an extreme reaction to have. I don't know if she, or maybe you caught something, something obviously happened in the past and she cannot stand the touch of a man. So when she sort of could possibly have a thing with Malabar, the, what was he, I'm getting confused because there's very, a lot of similarities between this and he who laughed. Was he a strong man? I think he was the strong man. Okay. Yeah. Because so, there's one scene where he he's can't doing the bar his, around his head. Yeah. He can't keep his hands off her and that just turns her off. She won't entertain. And so to think that she's met an armless man, you know, that's her perfect man. Yeah. And yeah. So, it is, yeah, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, yeah, it's but like, then to think, okay, I'm really going to cut my arms off. That's extreme. <laughs> it, it's yeah. That's, that's the dark and twisted side of it. And it's funny because I think when he's getting the idea for it, right, is when Kojo is telling him, you can't have a relationship with her because she's going to figure it out. And she knows, of course, what she had witnessed the circus owner get killed by Alonzo because Alonzo was was showing affection to Nanan. He was playing games early on, right, because he sees Malabar showing affection towards Nanan. He knows Nanan has this thing with, with hands. And so he tells Malabar, she, she loves to be touched, touch her, grab her, you know? And of course that says the opposite reaction. And then of course, then Nanan is spending time with Alonzo and the circus owner for reasons that aren't really clear, gets really angry about that. And then attacks Alonzo. Then later on uh, when he ends up, Taking the jacket off of Alonzo sees that, I mean, which is kind of stupid on his part. He's wandering around the 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 circus camp with his arms outside of the of the contraption, but simply under a jacket. That in itself is risky. He really wasn't thinking. When the jacket falls off and, and the circus owner sees, then he's like, ah, okay, you know, now I'm gonna get you. And then of course Alonzo kills him. Nanan witnesses the murder, but doesn't see his face, but she sees his hand and the, and the two thumbs that he has. Mm, yeah. So that's where Kojo says she knows that the killer had two thumbs. That way you can never you know, show your hands. And so then as his hands are kind of laying on the side of the chair, he's using his feet to light a cigarette or whatever. And Kojo starts laughing. He says, you forgot that you had hands. Yeah. That's when he gets the idea of like, hi, she'll cut my hands, my arms off, which is so extreme for love. We all do stupid things for love, but I don't think I ever came up with this idea of like, I'm going to impress this woman by cutting off my arms. That just, that's bizarre. Malabar, he's fallen in love with her. And so once he realizes kind of what her phobia is, he works around that. And he's, he's like, I'm going to make you love me, but I'm not going to do it by force. I'm going to show you what kind of good person that I am. And he basically goes about wooing her and courting her. And that's what wins her over, right? Is that she begins to realize, 
about you, you really aren't like the other men in her life, whatever caused her this trauma, she gets past her trauma and, and begins to accept Malabar for, for who he is and falls in love with him. The whole reason they're being able to fall in love with each other is because Alonzo has left to go have his arms removed. He removes himself from the romantic triangle and basically allows the two of them to fall in love without him there to be involved, to stop it, to do anything. And upon his return, realizes that not only have you done a stupid thing, you screwed up because you basically allowed the two of them to fall in love unhindered. And at that point, that's when he begins to kind of snap and realize, okay, unlike we're in he who gets slapped, he kind of snaps, but decides to shift that focus on the Baron and the Count. And here, Alonzo decides, well, I'm going to, to shift the focus on Malabar and decides to, in a brutal way, hmm. cause Malabar to lose both of his arms because Malabar has come up with his act, a strongman act where he has both arms are tied to horses on treadmills. And his whole thing is that by sheer strength, he's going to hold both of these horses at bay, you know, which in itself is a stupid idea. But <laughs> that, of course, is, is the, the doorway that Alonzo is, you know, has opened for him. And so he's like, ah, well, I've got the perfect thing right here. And, and they won't even know that, that I did it. When you get to that segment, if this movie was done today, it would be horrifically graphic. There would probably be an entirely different outcome. But back then, I think it was just the idea that that's where this was headed. Very intense for 1927. Very dark, very twisted. I'm sure 1927, people were probably sitting there at the edge of their seat as the horses were racing faster. And he's sitting there and he's struggling and struggling. Had to have been intense fear of like, oh, are we going to witness this? Is this is going to be horrible? Fantastic climax in this film, and proof positive that you can tell a story, you can tell it in a compelling way, you can get the audience on the edge of their seats, and you don't need to always be horrifically graphic. If you're a good filmmaker a good storyteller, if you're a good actor or actress, you can project this sheer horror without showing blood and guts and body parts being flailed every which way, which I think oftentimes a lot of modern filmmakers, they just go that cheap scare route. To me, it's much more interesting by what you don't see, but by what's implied. Todd Browning nailed it with the with the unknown. Lon Chaney did as well because his acting abilities and how the whole thing plays out ends up being perfect. I agree. I want to talk a little bit about Joan Crawford, but before I do that, do you have any more plot things? I guess this is pseudo cast related, but when you see Lon, some of the times use his feet in certain ways. Sometimes that is Lon's feet. Sometimes there's a double actor by the name of Paul Desmond, who in real life was armless himself and could use his feet. 
his feet are used in certain scenes. For example, the scene where he is sitting down in that chair and he's forgotten that he has the arms and his feet. If you look at it, it's like, wow, that's, that's kind of an unnatural position for those legs to be in. That's because the body of Paul Desmond was like underneath Lon Chaney and the legs, his legs were coming, sticking out from the bottom of the chair. It was just weird. Ooh, the how do you like to have someone else's feet put a cigarette in your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, interesting. But you know what? It, it, it worked on yeah. screen. It wasn't in every scene because there was sometimes where you could clearly tell that Lon was, was sitting, but I think there was also like the knife throwing sequences and some of that, there was some odd cuts in the film, the way, and I don't know if that was just the print that we have now, or if that's the way that it would have looked originally in 1927, but I did notice some odd cuts. I was not able to find if that was just the way it was or the way it is now, because this movie, it only existed in poor prints for a very long time until a clear copy was found uh, in 1968 in a French archive. And that's the print that we have now. Joan Crawford once said she learned more about acting from watching Lon Chaney work than from anyone else in her career. Quote, it was then I became aware for the first time of the difference between standing in front of a camera and acting, unquote. And then I found another little piece of that where she elaborates a little further or says it in a different way. He was the most intense and exciting individual I had ever met, a man mesmerized into his parts. When he worked, as it was as, as if God were working. He had such an intense concentration. His complete absorption filled me and my coworkers with such awe that we never even considered addressing him with the usual pleasantries until he became aware of and addressed us. Joan Crawford did an amazing job in this film. And when you see it, she was very attractive. Joan Crawford is always kind of in, in everyone's mind, right? Is the perpetual old biddy is screaming about wire hangers. But then when you see early Joan Crawford, you realize how attractive she was at one point, really before she did get older and then got very vain. And in the process of trying to make herself look younger, actually ends up kind of making herself look more like an old biddy and more like very harsh. She didn't age gracefully. And unfortunately, and I, it can go with for men too, but when someone who's been in the limelight decides they don't want to age gracefully, of course, nowadays, everyone gets plastic surgery and nine times out of 10, it ends up making them look horrific. And then you look at someone who has aged gracefully that is what everyone should be doing because it still looks like the person that you saw 20, 30, 40 years ago, just older. I loved seeing Joan Crawford at this early stage of her career, and, and she was very attractive and played a very interesting character. And, and I loved like when she finally accepts that she can appreciate the touch of a man. I'm sitting there feeling for Alonzo because, you know, Malabar comes up and she's just like, he's touching her and they're just doing all of the stuff. And I be happy for me, Alonzo, as he's touching my breast and he's touching me mm -hmm. all over and you can just see Alonzo. I mean, he's going through all of these emotions in that one scene where you can see that in his mind, he's angry. He's terrified at what he's done. He wants to hurt somebody. I mean, he goes through a gambit of emotions in a very quick amount of time, a fantastic scene, the way it plays out. And then ultimately he's like, all right, 
<laughs> I'm going to get him. Yeah, you, you know, you'll never touch, you'll never feel his touch again. Tell us about the cast. I know that Norman Carey is a familiar name. Yes, Norman Carey did 66 films, uh, most notably, besides this one, he was in Hunchback of Notre Dame and, and Phantom of the Opera. You've got the character of Kojo, played by John George. It should be recognizable for a lot of people. He's a great character actor. 232 film credits. Obviously, because he was a dwarf, I think is the official term that, that was used for him at the time. He was surprisingly quite busy as an actor, I mean, because he was very prolific in Hollywood. He did The Man Who Laughs. He had a role in that. He was in The Bells with Boris Karloff. He was in The Road to Mandalay. He was in Dracula, although I can't recall his role in Dracula, but apparently he was in that. He was in Island of Lost Souls, The Black Cat. I remember him most recently because we watched it over the holiday season. He was in March of the Wooden Soldiers. The evil character in that is Barnaby. He was like Barnaby's right-hand man. A movie called Dark Streets of Cairo. He was in Son of Sinbad. He was in Mesa of Lost Women. Mm -hmm. Dominique quoted on, on Facebook a while back. She loved that movie. And so, honestly, I have been thinking of it ever since. And for some reason, there's a dark, twisted part of me that is saying, you should watch that again, Richard. Perhaps it's good for you, you know? And, and all of a sudden, there's a part of my brain saying, don't do it. Don't do it. That music is going to break you. And I have little good Dominique Angel on one shoulder saying she loves it. Jeff, you should watch it for the first time. And then Richard, the little devil on the other shoulder saying that's the movie that broke me. So I don't know what to do. I'm torn. You know, I, I'm saying, yes, the little, little devil Richard is saying, watch it, Jeff, and judge for yourself. <laughs> and come back in a month. And when you're sitting here, you know, drooling and shaking and you're like, why, why did I do it? She also did, he also did lots of TV work. He died in 1968 at the age of 70. That's all I've got. Todd Browning, obviously we, we all know about Todd Browning, Dracula, Freaks, Mark of the Vampire, Devil Doll, Legendary. And of course the films that he did with Lon Chaney as well. Definitely Todd Browning, had kind of a dark, twisted vision of the world. Nonetheless, I, I really enjoyed The Unknown. It stands out as one of Lon Chaney's best. From a makeup perspective, he really doesn't have any makeup in this one. It, it is the special effect aspect of his hands being tied down to his body. It is a movie that is a little bit harder to find. So if you choose to seek it out, and I, I suggest that you do, I know that it pops up somewhat regularly on Turner Classic Movies because it's part of their film library. It is available on DVD as part of the TCM Archives Lon Chaney Collection. You will get it with movies Ace of Hearts, Laugh Clown Laugh, and the um, reconstruction of London After Midnight. Now, if you buy it on Amazon, they're selling it for $48, but you can buy used copies for $20. I have had good luck with buying used movies on Amazon. Most of the time, you can't even tell that they've been used. Uh, I'm happy with my deluxe Blu-ray version of London, London After Midnight. It's perfectly adequate. <laughs> I might have to make a copy of that at some point in the I don't know what the big fuss about it is. Mm. You know, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> As we wrap this up, how would you rank the films? Very easily, he who gets slapped, the unknown, neck and neck, but artistry of 
he who gets slapped, I think makes it a little bit more my favorite. And then distant, distant third is the monster. I would be the same. I, I wouldn't say the monster was a distant, distant third for me, but definitely third place. And I would say, yes, the unknown is almost like a 1.5 behind he who gets slapped. He who gets slapped really was uh, a very pleasant surprise for me. I, I wasn't sure what to expect with that movie. Uh, I was a little leery of the whole clown aspect, but now once I've seen it, it's like, yeah, that really was a, a fantastic film. I would agree with you on those ratings. That doesn't happen too often that we're in. Total it used time. to happen all the time. And then, you know, I wanted to spice things up by arguing with you. So, well, no argument this time. No. I think we've been pretty much in agreement on all three films and there's a lot more of Lon Chaney uh, out there that we're, you've covered some of it and I'll be covering some. Let's get back to it, right? Yeah, what did he do after this? He did a few other films in 1927. Mockery, which is a movie I've not seen, but gets mentioned a lot. Have you seen that one? No. Okay. London After Midnight, of course, that is the notorious lost film. Every once in a while, a rumor pops up, hey, it's resurfaced in this archive. I think there's a very good chance that this movie exists in a private collection somewhere and that we just don't know it because the movie was part of the MGM library. The known print was destroyed in the infamous 1960-something MGM fire. But the movie was available for rent. And of course, back then, people did rent movies to play in their homes. Obviously not Joe Average, but rich people did have movie projectors in their homes. London After Midnight was known to be part of those movies that was being rented out. And that wouldn't have been the print that MGM lost in the fire. So there were other prints out there. And I think that it's it's very likely that it's <clears throat> sitting somewhere in a private collection. I, I believe this is a movie that will resurface at some point in the future, hopefully in my lifetime. But I, I think we will we will see this. Now, I believe that when we do finally see it, as I think everyone agrees, we will probably be disappointed by it because we know what the story is. Essentially, it's Mark of the Vampire, which is a great movie until you get to the final scene. And then it really does ruin the movie in, in so many ways. But all that said, I would still love to see it. There is a great reconstruction. It's about a 30, 35 minute reconstruction that uses stills and some interesting other pictures kind of thrown in to try to weave the story as best as possible. Obviously not as good as seeing the real film, but a fun reconstruction that's out there. So the next film that Lon Chaney does is The Big City in 1928. This is a lost film. He also does Laugh Clown Laugh that year. Have you seen that one? No. I have not either, but it's on my list. While the City Sleeps, also released 1928, which I believe was kind of a film, almost like a film noir-ish crime drama. West of Zanzibar from 1928 is a film that I want to see. Have you seen that one? No, I. it's high on my list to see, though. It is. It's high on my list. I, I'm fairly certain that's a, not a Carla movie based on what, the, what she has seen of it in the documentary. Lon Chaney's not a good guy in that one. Where East is East comes up in 1928 or 29. I can't, I can't, I, I might have had the date wrong here. That's next. And then Thunder from 1929 is a film that is kind of infamous because 
During the filming of Thunder, this is where Lon Chaney developed pneumonia. And because of snow, some scenes with snow in that, fake snow gets lodged in his throat. It kind of becomes infected, adds to the whole issue that he's got breathing problems. And then a short time after that, he gets diagnosed with lung cancer. I don't know if there's any correlation between the two, but one does kind of follow the other. Sadly, Thunder is a mostly missing film. Only half a reel of the film exists. It is his last silent film. The next film he does would have been his first official sound film. And when it was his first official sound film, a remake of The Unholy Three. The decision was made that that would be the film that would be his first sound film because the original story was so popular and they thought it was probably the best of Lon Chaney's silent films to be adapted for sound. Now, there was a sound version of Phantom of the Opera that was released. There's so many different versions of that film that's been released. It's it's mind-boggling. There was a, a kind of a synchronized sound version that came out but Lon Chaney's voice was not used for that. And I think, I don't even know if a full print of that exists. If it does, it's never been released. I think the the sound discs still exist. I know that on the Phantom of the Opera DVD I have, they show a snippet and you hear the actor's voice who is doing the voice of the Phantom. It doesn't sound right. And it's not Lon Chaney's voice. And if it exists, I'd love to see it at some point. I don't know that it does. In any case, The Unholy Three becomes his debut into sound, and it is, unfortunately, his last film. He dies of a throat hemorrhage on August 26, 1930, at the age of 47. The U.S. Marine Corps provided a chaplain and an honor guard to play taps, again, showing the respect they had for Lon Chaney for his work in Tell It to the Marines. MGM also observed two minutes of silence during his funeral. The interesting thing is that he is interred in an unmarked crypt next to his father. No one knows why his wishes were to be interred in this crypt unmarked. His wife, Hazel, dies three years later. She dies in 1933. I could not find out what she died of. She is interred next to him and hers, I believe, is marked. So that's an easy way to find where Lon is interred. And it was only after the death of his father that Creighton Cheney decided to enter acting. He had been doing a variety of other, mostly construction work and, and such. But upon the death of his father, he entered acting and he would eventually, mostly at the behest of Universal Pictures, adapt the name Lon Cheney Jr. It wasn't until I think 39 or maybe the late 30s, that he adapted uh, or took the name Lon Chaney Jr. And sometimes he would be billed only as Lon Chaney, but Lon Chaney Jr. was the name that he had and, and held for the rest of his life until he passed. Mostly out, I think, out of respect to his father, but I also think out of a way to kind of capitalize that he was the, the son of Lon Chaney. Universal really was pushing for that. The legacy of Lon Chaney, of course, has continued on. I know that Ron Chaney did some stuff for a while, kind of hitting the convention circuit. I know, I think he did Monster Bash. And I know that he did do a film, House of the Wolfman, 
I actually like that movie. Some people really don't like it. It's a low budget production. And that's about all that I have. Do you have anything else to add to the career of Lon Chaney? No, I mean, I've got some more fact correcting, especially compared to the movie, but I don't think we need to backtrack and go over that. The one thing I would rather say is that, and we kind of talked about this when we did our silent movie episode, if the idea of that turns you off for some reason, either you think they're going to be boring or it's too much work to read the titles or you know whatever it is, put that aside because these are some terrific movies and for their time and even beyond their time, remarkable achievements, and they should not be discounted. I, I highly recommend them. Even the worst of these three, you should watch. You should seek them out if you haven't seen them. Silent films are not something you can just plug in and be on your phone or because obviously you need to be focused on what's happening on the screen because you're going to have to read to understand what's happening. That could be an adjustment if you've never watched a silent film. Tune out for the rest of the world and just immerse yourself into the to silent film. I mean, there are so many, we've lost 90%, as I said earlier, 90% of silent films are lost, but we have so many great silent films out there and not just horror films, but you know, comedies and dramas that really are truly amazing and classic and, and some wonderful filmmaking that was made that really sets the stage for the decades of films that have followed. If you don't at least give it a shot, you're kind of closing yourself off from some wonderful films, some amazing actors, some wonderful stories. Don't be intimidated. Take the time to find a good print with a good score because that will definitely make or break your experience. I will take one thing you said a step further, and that is try watching even a color modern movie without looking at your phone. Pay attention to it. Become immersed in it. I guarantee you it's a different experience and you'll get more out of it. I agree wholeheartedly. Let's take one more quick break. We'll come back, do some new business, and then wrap things up. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across then and now reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories. Stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. We are back with new business, and I'll start with some home video releases. I almost hesitate to mention this because we've been talking about some classic movies. We've been talking about Lon Chaney, and I'm going to come in here now and mention Meat Cleaver Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) The Shout Factory's latest exclusive, so you can only get it from them. And this is one that 
I've no, I've never seen it, but I'm debating. I've still got the email. I look at it every day. I know I'm going to buy the damn thing. And it's, <laughs> it's only because of Christopher Lee. So first I heard that he only, he narrated. And I'm like, well, if you're a completist, you know, you got to have that. Yeah. Then I understand he may have a bit part in it, but it's a scene he filmed for another movie that they put into this one. The snowball's rolling and more and more reasons for me to purchase this thing. So that's available now. And I also want to say, and I don't know when this airs, if it will still be on. I think it goes through most of April. And that is Kino Lorber is having their March into Spring sale, where a lot of their films are 50% off. Interestingly, they do have a, what I assume is a very good version of Hunchback of Notre Dame that is on sale for a very good price during that sale. So I can tie that in and, and recommend that uh, you check that out. And plus they have a lot of other great films as well. We also have on April 12th from Kino Warber, uh, a Dr. Fives double feature, Abominable Dr. Fives and Dr. Five Rises Again together on one Blu-ray. We have same date, New Year's Evil and Tentacles. And of these three, because I have the Fives double feature already in a couple different versions, Tentacles, I believe, is hard to find. I had to write about that and had a difficult time locating it. That might be one you want to look into. It's not a bad, well, it's technically a bad movie, but I enjoy it. So uh, I'll definitely be getting Tentacles. April 19th, Shop Factory Night Creatures with another Mark Maddox cover. We've mentioned that in the past. Not one of my favorite drawings of his, but that's also not one of my favorite Hammer films. And then on April 26th, Dementia from 1955. This is coming from the Cohen Film Collection. I don't know much about it, but this is one of those that when I read the synopsis, I had to mention it. I will share that here. This film with no dialogue at all follows a psychotic young woman's nightmarish experiences through one skid row night. I will say, Kino Lorber, you're having your sale. Where is my Santo versus the evil brain and Santo versus the infernal men? Oh, they're going to come out after the sale, so you have to pay full price. Anything I missed, I know there have been recent announcements. It seems like those are for June titles, so, you know, we'll mention those probably in the next episode or two. But anything I missed for April? I don't think so. We don't talk streaming because you and I are both physical media type people. That said, I want to give a shout out, I guess, real quick, because there are some cool things out there in the streaming world. If you love classic horror movies, have you ever checked Tubi TV out? I've heard a lot about it. It seems like there's a lot of stuff on there. I don't like commercial interruptions at inappropriate places. I will say, yes, they do throw them at the the most inopportune time. Other than the placement of the commercials, they're not excessively long commercials. I, I know some of the free services out there before the thing even starts, you got to make your way through 10 commercials. And I'm like, nope, you lost me. I don't care that it's free. I will say there's a lot of stuff on Tubi TV. And we've watched some where we're almost like 45 minutes in before they do any type of commercial. Plus, Tubi has dark shadows. Birthdays slash plugs for old episodes. April 5th, 1908, Betty Davis. Talked about her in episode 38, our exploitation horror. April 18th, 1922, Nigel Neal. Talked about him just last month, episode 66, Quatermass. 
And then April 22nd, 1894, Rondo Hatton. We talked about him in episode 17, where we really, really, really pump up the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. The deadline, actually, I believe, is his birthday. I never made that connection that that's why the deadline is in April. You know, and, and let's pause for just a second and toot our own horn, because I know we haven't done this, and I don't know, I feel inspired in the moment, is that we've been nominated for Best Podcast. We're not campaigning. We're not really publicizing it much. We, we feel honored that we're nominated. People who listen to the show nominated us. Jeff and I certainly have our opinions on the nomination process. We're glad that we're nominated. We're very, very appreciative. Very thankful. I will say again, thank you to anyone who has nominated us. Uh, and thank you to anyone who feels so inclined to vote. There's a lot of other podcasts in the categories. We're up against some, some professional stuff. We're also up against a lot of our friends. And that's where I'm not comfortable campaigning for ourselves because I feel like I'd be campaigning against my friends. I don't want to go down the list because I'm going to forget somebody. All I will say is if you choose to vote for us, thank you very much. It is an honor to be nominated. We can throw that on our tagline. We are the Rondo nominated <laughs> podcast. If you so choose to vote, do so. You can vote for any category that you want. Vote for us, vote for somebody else. Thank you for, for listening and thank you for nominating us. Very much appreciated. Now back to birthdays. <laughs> and anniversaries. April 5th, 1973, Theater of Blood was released. We talked about it in episode 59 recently, one of our drive-in episodes. April 19th, 1972, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. We talked about that way back in episode 32. We did a, a Hammer episode related to Monster Bash and Martine Beswick. And then April 25th, 1951, the movie Five. We talked about fairly recently in episode 65, which was our five-year anniversary. So happy birthday to all of those people and happy anniversary to all of those movies. Richard, you've mentioned some things you're doing on your blog. What else that you want to share that you might not have mentioned yet? Well, I am going to be covering some of the Lon Chaney movies, like I said. Doing my best to try to get back in the swing of things with OTR Wednesdays and get back to the Sherlock Holmes. Admittedly, work got crazy, and so I wasn't getting them posted early enough. And at the end of the day, I was kind of like, I was just lazy. I said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of spent. As we record this, I, I posted this past week, so hopefully I'm back in the swing of things if I miss a week or two, know that we'll get back to it. What have you got cooking over at your respective websites? Oh, same old, same old. Oh, now, come on. <laughs> you doing some good time. Well, and you talk about streaming, uh, and this will have come out last week, I guess, before this is posted. My current obsession is the, the two movies, Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. The Bloody Pit podcast with Rod Barnett talked about Flesh for Frankenstein. I've never seen them. He inspired me to finally watch it. And I'm a little bit obsessed. So I will share my thoughts on those. I do want to just list some movies that I've written about for not technically one of the We Belong Dead books, but a book that's coming out about British horror films of the 70s. And these are more bite-sized pieces so I didn't write as much about it, like four to 500 words on The Bloody Judge, The Nightcomers, which is an interesting sort of prequel to Turn of the Screw, 
Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, The Legacy, Saturn Three, and The Creeping Flesh. I love Saturn Three. I mean, you laugh at that, but I I, I enjoy it. Okay, <laughs> so that will do it for books for a while. Eric is back to touring and traveling and a backlog of of projects. So I'm not aware of anything that I'll be working on after that. Wednesday's Metamorpho on DC Comics guy will be getting into some of his appearances in the Justice League of America. And then Friday's TV Terror Guide, we have reached what I think is the pinnacle of 1970s TV horror with Legend of Lizzie Borden and then Trilogy of Terror, one right after the other two classics, excellent films, two of the best. And we'll see where we go from there if we keep rising or if it's downhill from there. I saw this morning where, where Steve Sullivan disagreed with you. He thought the Night Stalker was the pinnacle. Yeah, see, uh, I talked about that before. The Night Stalker, it's good. I just, I like the Night Strangler better. Trilogy of Terror is so much fun. I haven't seen Lizzie Borden in a gazillion years, decades, possibly since it was originally here. I do remember watching it. I was young and I wasn't supposed to. I still regret not getting my Zuni fetish doll. I, I posted it and anyone who didn't see it on Facebook. I had a, one of those things that probably nothing good would have come out of it, but driving in just outside Estes Park, Colorado, in one of those little towns on the way as you're winding your way up there, there was a little roadside shop. And in the window, it said Zuni fetish dolls. And I so desperately wanted to pull over and go in and see and I was in the car with, with my kids and they were like, don't do it. And my daughter, especially, she says that nothing will come good of that. And so I didn't. And I regret not going in at least, you know, in my mind, I see like, you know, this, this little Asian man sitting behind the counter <laughs> like, oh, you've come for the Zuni finished doll. Don't give it water after midnight. Yeah, don't give it water after midnight. And it's like sitting up on a shelf or something, you know, with dust or in a case or something. You know, honestly, it was probably a stack of like cheaply made Zuni fetish dolls for 1995. But my memory and my, my fantasies of it are, are like, yeah, that probably was a lot creepier than I probably would have been. That brings us to the end of new business, which means it's the end of our show. Rich, why don't you take the pleasure of telling everyone what we're doing next month so that they can watch the movies and call in and give us participation and feedback. Next month, we are going the fantasy route, and we are going to be entering the wonderful world of Ray Harryhausen and Sinbad by taking a look at uh, Harryhausen's Sinbad trilogy, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad 1973, and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger from 1977. The biggest reason we're doing this is because Monster Bash is coming up at the end of June, and we've got Patrick Wayne, Sinbad himself, or one of the three Sinbads, and Caroline Monroe are going to be two of the guests, and so we thought it would be fun Certainly give credit to my wife, Carla, who said, why don't you do Sinbad movies? And as she said, April is her birthday month. And that was her wish. <laughs> she says, why did you do Cheney in April? You should have done Sinbad. And 
Well, there's a reason we did Cheney because that was his birth month. And the reason we're doing that in May instead of June when Monster Bash is actually happening is because June is time to go back to the drive-in. I'm looking forward to that because the trips to the drive-in are always fun. Anything else? I'm trying to see if I could squeeze in a, a, a Star Trek. You did a Star Trek. You got you. I forget what it is now, but you you got it in there somewhere. I did. Yep. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I don't remember, but you did. OK, well, I, I called you. it out. I didn't have any Doctor Who references. I'm sorry. Kind of hard to pull Doctor Who out. I mean, the closest I can say is King George the <laughs> fifth in England. Yeah, <laughs> and that's it. We will leave with another song called Lon Chaney. This is by a group called Vetiver, V-E-T-I-V-E-R. It's from their 2008 album, Thing of the Past, available on Apple Music. It's a little bit more somber of a song. I think that's kind of appropriate as we have our memories of Lon Chaney and the great contribution he made to cinema. So Richard, until next time, and everyone, thanks for listening. We will see you in a month. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Sit right down and let me sing you a song